Second Kings chapter 5 for our Bible study time. And if you need a Bible uh, to follow along with us, just lift up your hand and one will be um, brought to you so that you can follow along um, with us in our study tonight. Uh, also, if you have one of the yellow sheets, we'll hopefully we'll have PowerPoint up and running sooner than later. But in the meantime, um, the, the cross-references for the study are on the yellow sheet. And as you're uh, just turning there, just a few quick announcements. Um, this Saturday morning is the, the monthly men's breakfast. So once a month, our men's discipleship group um, breaks from standard procedure, and we have a, a, a breakfast uh, here in the cafe off to my left, right through the, the doors there. Um, so it starts at 8 and it goes till 9 and we um, eat. We eat really good. We eat like men. Um, we hear the word of God. We fellowship together. And so uh, I would encourage you men, if you're available this Saturday at 8, come on out for the breakfast. Uh, there is a sign up on the back table just to give us kind of an idea of how to plan for food. But then after that, uh, also there will be another work day here. And if you have the time that you can give to uh, come and help serve uh, in the stuff that's going on, a lot of cleanup has to take place this um, Saturday, so you don't necessarily have to be real skilled, but just willing to serve, um, and, and we'll definitely use your help. Uh, and also, again, I, I mentioned this last week, I'll say it again tonight, is that, um, you know, the, the greater need, I think, is for the second uh, shift, and that really starts, you know, around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon when we turn this place back into a church. And if you can just imagine that for a minute, it has to change from a construction site to a church, and I don't know if there's a greater, um, you know, contrast between two places that exist, you know, and uh, and so that kind of can become the heavier burden because people have to kind of check out and move on and they've got family things to do. And then there's three or four people that have to turn this place into a church, you know. Um, so so if you have any time uh, second half of the day on Saturday, then we would welcome that. And don't you don't even have to call and ask if we still need the help. Just if you're free, please come help. Uh, so so that's it for that. That's the Saturday. Also, um, if you um, didn't get one of these, if you swing by the children's ministry wing right on the counter, it is a little flyer that you can put on your refrigerator to remind you about the Hyde Park Roller Magic Harvest Fun Night that we're sponsoring. Um, it's, it's at the roller rink in Hyde Park. All the information is on this. It's on Sunday evening, November 2nd. It's from 6 to 8. It's a potluck. It is so much fun. And uh, I would encourage you to please um, remember that and, and make it a point if you can come out to that. You don't even have to skate. If you want to just come fellowship, um, but it'll be a fun time uh, to get together. And so grab one of those uh, and remember that's available. And also one more thing, and this is um, good news. Ashley Dawson, who's one of our worship leaders here at the church, is in labor currently. Um, yeah, praise the Lord. And so we're, what we're going to do right now is we're just going to pray as a body for her and for everything that's going on there, that God would just let that all work smoothly and, um, and, and that there would be health for mom and baby and peace for all involved. So um, would you pray with me? And also, you're in already Second Kings, so we'll, we'll double up on our prayer here. We will pray for Ashley, then we'll pray for our study, and then we'll get into um, the word of God together. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for your faithfulness. You said that you who began a good work in us, that you would complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And your word says that your eye is ever upon us and that you'll never slumber or sleep. You tell us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. And as a church body right now, Lord, in Jesus' name, we lift up Ashley, our sister, to you, and Patrick, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that your peace would be upon that delivery room and upon that delivery process. 
We're asking, Lord, that you would just give an easy and uh, as painless as possible delivery, Lord, with no complications, and that you would let there be perfect health for both baby and mom. And so please, Lord, as you add life, as is your goal and your desire, Lord, we pray that you would bless that time there for them. And Father, as we're here, Lord, we're seeking that our lives would be less centered and focused on this world and more surrendered and given to your kingdom and what's to come. And so as we open up the word of God at this time, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would breathe upon it. One word, Lord, spoken on or anointed of you is better than a thousand, Lord, spoken from the mind of man. And so, Lord, we're asking tonight that you would take this study, these verses, the concepts, the truth that we will hear and discover. And, Lord, that you would make it a part of our very being, that it would increase our understanding and that we'd be eternally enriched by what you say to us tonight. And so, Lord, would you please come at this time? Would you please, Lord, speak to our hearts? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of God's greatest desires, and really one of God's main objectives when he made man in the first place, was that he might reveal himself and that he might be known. The Bible says that even in creation or through creation itself, God's intent or objective was to be known. Paul wrote to the Roman church in chapter 1 verse 20, and he said that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. That is that God, in even what he made, his desire in design, was that he might be known, that we would discover who he is. Inside, God's whole plan for redemption was the desire or the motive that he might reveal himself, or that he would be known. His works that he's accomplished in the world through his servants throughout time, from the beginning even into the present days, the objective behind God doing those works is that he might be revealed unto man. And of course, it goes without saying that in sending his son Jesus, God's desire was that he might make himself known. John wrote in chapter 1, verse 18, it says that no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, the heart of the Father, he has declared him. And that word that he uses for declared is the word to expose or exegete. What it means is that you would have a picture to put to a concept. In other words, Jesus was the revelation of the Father in being, in man. And thus we see that God's desire is that he might be known. He wants us to know him. And thus we're studying the prophet Elisha in this section of 2 Kings. And his life is made up of a series of miracles with a message, or miracles designed to teach. And what God is seeking to communicate to us through these miracles is to reveal more of who he is, to give depth to our understanding of his heart. And so thus far, as we've seen Elisha, we've seen beautiful truths about God's character and God's care for humanity and what God wants to do in our lives. Elisha represents God in a way that is completely unique to any that have come before him and many that will come after. And that's God's desire. And so tonight we resume in the study of Elisha and we begin with the cleansing 
of a Syrian soldier by the name of Naaman. And so chapter 5, verse 1. It says, now Naaman, or Naaman, or Nahaman, if you want to be legitimate, but we'll just probably say Naaman tonight because we're North Americans. Captain of the host of the king of Syria was a great man. Now pause right there. Remember last week in our study, we looked at a great woman, the Shunammite woman. The word in Hebrew, gedal, a unique word speaking of moral greatness, moral excellence, excellence of character. That that was the type of woman that she was. And now that same word being used to describe this Syrian soldier, the captain of the host of Syria, Naaman. That he was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He also was a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Now we see throughout the Bible from time to time the disease of leprosy cropping up within the text. Usually, or always really, theologically, leprosy speaks of or is likened unto in the Bible sin. That is because of this. Leprosy starts below the surface. It's a condition that at first cannot be detected. You don't really know that you have it. And the first sign of it working its way out is seemingly small. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. It's just a mark or a scratch, a blemish in the surface and really doesn't seem a big thing at all. But eventually, leprosy is all-consuming. It putrefies and rots the flesh from the inside out And left to itself, the person with leprosy will become disfigured and ultimately they will die from the disease. Leprosy, even to the present day, has no known cure. There's no way that you can cure it. Now, in modern times, it's called Hansen's disease and there are medications and treatments whereby you can keep it under control or suppress it. But there's no known way to cure it completely. And for that reason, when the Bible talks about a cure for leprosy, it doesn't use the word cure, it uses the word cleansed. And interestingly, there's a law in the book of Leviticus, chapter 14, that talks about what a person is to do or how they're to thank God in the occasion that they are cleansed from leprosy. So a disease with no cure actually has an offering prescribed in the law for how to sacrifice when leprosy is cleansed, meaning that the Bible gives hope to the fact that leprosy can in fact be cleansed. And So the summation now of Naaman's character in the scriptures is that he's a good man, he's worthy, he's honorable, he's favored by God, but he has a death sentence upon his life. Now, just like leprosy, sin starts below the surface. At first, it seems like it's not a big deal. It's something that doesn't really have to be taken out of my life because though there's a little bit of a blemish, it doesn't seem to be affecting me. But in time, if sin goes unchecked, it's all-consuming. It putrefies your life, it disfigures your character, and ultimately, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. There is also no known human cure for sin. You cannot cure yourself of your sinful condition in it. And so leprosy becomes a picture of sin. And thus Naaman becomes a picture of any person living without Christ. Now the Bible says that every single one of us is born in sin. We're all descendants of Adam. 
And therefore we inherited the sin that he brought upon all men because we are all descendants of him. So whether any person likes it or not or wants to admit it or not, every single one of us is under the curse or the condemnation or the death sentence of sin. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And thus every man, woman, and child, no matter their position in life, is under the death sentence of sin. And it doesn't matter what we are or aren't, unless the sin issue is dealt with, the person stands condemned. Now it's interesting to me that all of the words that describe the character of Naaman are good words. It tells us that he was great, that he was the captain, that he was honorable, that that even the Lord used his life, gave deliverance into Syria by him, that he was a mighty man of valor. All of the words that are used concerning him are good words. But nevertheless, he still wasn't cleansed, and even a good man needed to be cleansed. And so the story of Naaman is how a good man needed to be, and then ultimately was, cleansed. Now a sad fact that's just true, is that the hardest people to reach with the gospel are good, successful, and gifted people. People like Naaman that we see in the text. For some reason, they're the ones that are the hardest to reach because they can't see their sinful position. They compare themselves with others and not with God's standard of perfection. And when put next to someone else, the outward expression of their life looks to be greater than what other people are and therefore they think that they have no need. They haven't come to terms yet with the fact that they are leprous. And that's much like the character Naaman in our story. So he was a leper. Well, the plot continues, verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little girl. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, it was typical in those days that the Syrian raiders, these rogue bands of Syrian soldiers, would go into opposing territories such as Israel or maybe down into Jordan and just to try to take a spoil or to maybe grab some territory. And on one of these raids that they went into Israel, probably right into Samaria, a young girl is taken probably with her family and she becomes, as a byproduct of that, a servant to Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God that my Lord, speaking of Naaman, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. So this little girl had compassion on Naaman, which again affirms his good character as it's placed in the scripture. Here she is, a slave under his wife. And yet she has compassion for his condition, and thus she speaks a word and says, would that he were with the prophet, that he might be cleansed. What does this speak to us? Never think for one moment that because of who you are, or your position in life, or how small or insignificant you think you are, that your words that you speak to someone mean nothing. I mean, here's a little slave girl who's just the servant of a wife of a captain. I mean, how insignificant and small is that? And yet she just speaks a word and says, hey, there's hope because there's someone in Israel that perhaps could be an answer for Naaman's cure. Well, God takes that word that was spoken by this girl at some point. It hits the ears of someone else who then goes in and speaks it to 
Naaman now that it, there's, a, there's a possibility of this thing actually happening. It's amazing what God can do with the small words that we speak to people. I remember just being a young man, and back in the days when I grew up, uh, people would smoke indoors a lot more. And I remember my parents never smoked, but in our home, they always had house guests or people over that would, and they would just smoke in our house. And mom would put out the ashtray on the table, and they would talk for hours, and we would choke and cough, you know. And I remember Pat Pierce, our next door neighbor who is deceased now, she would come in the house and she would fill it up with smoke. And one time she saw me looking at her pack of cigarettes sitting there laying on the table. And she looked at me as she, (coughs) you know, coughed out. And she said, don't ever start smoking. It'll turn your lungs black. And I was like, you know, wide-eyed in the whole thing. But just that one word that she spoke to me, was enough to keep me from ever smoking a cigarette in my life. Now, I smoked other things, lest you think that I was, you know, puritanical in my before Christ days, you know. But I never smoked a cigarette because I was so scared about my lungs being turned black and the addictive nature of, uh, you know, cigarettes and all the rest. But here's my point. My point is this, is that when you speak even the small things into people's life, God will anoint your words, And you never know what he's going to cause to stick fast in someone's heart and what will ultimately come of just the small thing that you shared. A small, insignificant girl speaks a word, and we'll see what happens with it. Well, now, it says that the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. So somewhere between one and three hundred thousand dollars worth of payment for this thing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel. And you would do that because you would assume that the prophet worked for the king, and so you would send the message to who you perceived the prophet was his you know his boss. Saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant to thee, that you may recover him of his leprosy. Now, you're the king receiving this letter, a godless king, not necessarily favorable towards Elisha. And it came to pass that when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. He's trying to start a war. He's sending the captain of his host, who is a reputable and valiant man here, and he's asking something that's unreasonable of me. And When I'm unable to produce the cure that he's hoping to procure, then he's going to start a fight and say that I didn't help him. This is just mischief. This is the Syrians again. And it was so that when Elisha, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, wherefore, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. So he comes and he's standing on the doormat. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, go And wash in the Jordan, the Jordan River, seven times. And your flesh shall come again to thee, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was wroth, or in a rage. He was angry, and he went away, and he said, Behold, I thought 
that he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand on the place or smack me in the forehead and he would recover the leper. He's expecting a healing service and instead he gets a text message. He thinks that Elisha's going to come out and there's going to be this pompous display of religious healing, you know, and, and music and organ playing and a hallelujah, you know, and, 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 and all he gets is this little message from a messenger of Elisha who doesn't even come to the door that says, go and dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. So he's angry that Elisha didn't come, but he's also angry, verse 12, he says, are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. So not only is he angry that Elisha didn't give him the time of day, but he's also angry because why the River Jordan? Now, if you've ever seen the Jordan River, it's not probably the impressive sight that you would think if you picture it in your mind. It's a mucky, almost creek type of thing. It's murky waters that you can't see through. And if you get into it, you sink. It's miry. It's not a clean river by any stretch. And he thinks about that and he says, I'm not getting in that river. I know the Jordan River. This is disgusting. This is a waste of time. I can't believe we're here. Now, why is Naaman angry and why is he not happy with the prescription that Elisha gives him for his cleansing? The answer is this is that right now God is dealing with Naaman and he's reaching to the very root of Naaman's biggest problem. And his biggest problem is not leprosy. His biggest problem is his pride. Now the Bible tells us that God hates pride. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, God gives his top seven list of things that he hates. And number one on top of the list is a proud look. God hates pride. Now, a proud person carries with them certain characteristics. They are, number one, always self-absorbed. That is, they are egocentric people that thinks that the world and, in fact, the universe revolves around them. A proud person is also self-sufficient. They're independent, and they refuse to take help or at least allow it to be perceived that they would take help from anyone. They're self-sufficient people. They are also self-inflated. They have a magnified view of themselves. Now, there are two realities that exist in an individual's life at any given time. The reality, first of all, of what they really are, and second of all, the reality of what they think they are. And a proud person always has an expanded view of themselves that is way different from the reality that exists inside. Now, God calls us towards humility which is the antithesis of pride. Humility is not self-hate. If pride is self-love, you would think, well, humility must be self-hate. No, 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 no. Humility isn't self-hate. Humility is just self-honesty. It's deflating the ideal self that you think you are and bringing your perception of yourself into congruency with what you really are. That's why God said to the psalmist, or through the psalmist, in Psalm 51, verse 6, it says that he desires truth in the inward parts. That's what he wants. He just wants us to recognize and realize what we are, not to be self-inflated. And the fourth characteristic, and we could go on with this, but the fourth characteristic of a proud person is that they are self-deceived. 
And that's perhaps the most damaging aspect of pride. Because the first thing that happens when pride creeps into someone's heart is that it disables their ability to recognize the fact that they've been lifted up in pride. And they think they're the most humble people in the world, when in reality they're the most proud. And the reason that God hates pride is this. Because a person cannot be saved or set free from the condition of their sin until they shed their pride enough to deal with the fact that they are fallen, that they are needy, and that they are spiritually leprous. Now, in order for Naaman to be cleansed of his leprosy, he's going to have to, if he's going to do it Elisha's way, he's going to have to, first of all, take off his armor in the presence of his servants. He's going to have to lay aside his position and the respect that they have for him. He's going to have to put down his credentials, and for a moment, he's going to have to look like everyone else. And for him, that's a great sacrifice. Not only that, but he's going to have to expose his leprosy into the eyes of the bystanders. He's going to have to strip down even more to the fact that they can see that this decorated man who's so well-esteemed and carries himself so strong is in fact mortal. And he carries in fact a weakness that expresses his mortality in in a very real and visible way. And third of all, he's going to have to do it in Israel in front of a people that he has hated for all of his past history, a people that he's been prejudiced against. And so for those reasons, Naaman finds himself not willing to do what Elisha has asked. But he has only one choice. He can either stay leprous or he can do what Elisha said. He doesn't have a whole lot of options. Abana, Farpar, rivers in Damascus, they weren't an option in what Elisha was giving to him. He had to do one or the other. And so Naaman needs to be reminded. Look at verse 13. And his servants came near and they spoke unto him and they said, my father, (laughs) leprosy, that wasn't me, (laughs) leprosy, (laughs) hey, (laughs) that's what they said. They said, my father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, you know, slay the dragon and recover the seven golden apples or, you know, if he had bid you to do something magnificent. Would you not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith unto thee, wash and be clean. Listen, Naaman, I know you don't like what happened and how things fell for you here, but you still have leprosy. And it's going to kill you. And you're starting to smell. And you're looking a little bit funny. And you really should probably just try to do what it is that Elisha has given to you. Now, Naaman is so bothered about the way that Elisha gave him that he forgot to be grateful that there was a way in the first place. He should have been thankful that there was a possibility. Well, he does it. Watch this. It says verse 14. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. Now, put yourself there in the audience or even in the feet of Naaman for a moment. You get in once, you get in twice, three times, four times. You're thinking, this is ridiculous. He goes in the seventh time and it says that His flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He was born again. The flesh of a baby comes onto the the body or the skeleton or the frame of this man, Naaman, in this thing. Now, there is nothing special about the Jordan River. If there was, then every leper that ever lived and every leper colony that existed in the world would immigrate to Israel, and there would be a big healing 
compound right near the Jordan River, and people would just be dunking and being baptized in the Jordan River every day. But there's nothing special about that water in this thing. And it doesn't even make sense that it should work, that, that he should be cleansed of this thing. We're dealing with something that is absolutely miraculous here. And isn't that just like the gospel of Jesus Christ? Mankind has a problem. It's sin. And the wages of sin is death. And unless that sin is cleansed, man will die in his sins. Now, a man can be awakened to his need to have that sin purged, but he still remains powerless to do anything about it because God hasn't given us the power to remove sin from ourselves. We can abstain from sins, but we can't remove the condition of sin that exists within us. Then at some point, God graciously allows the message of the gospel to be given, and God is faithful, and he will give everyone an opportunity to respond to that message. That if you would put your faith in the Son of God who came into the world and disrobed himself of his glory and put on humanity and walked this earth and lived the sinless life and then he hung on a cross and absorbed the full weight of God's wrath and the penalty of sin. And that if you would put your faith in Jesus Christ and take up your cross and repent of your sins and turn to him with all of your heart, then God will take your sin and he will place it upon Christ and he will take Christ's righteousness and he will place it upon you and you can be forgiven of your sin and cleansed of the condition that you stand condemned into. That's the message of the gospel. And when a person responds to that message and they say, as foolish as it sounds and as much as it doesn't make sense to me that it should work, yet I have no other choice because that is the way that God has prescribed that man can be freed from his sins. And so therefore, I'm going to take God at his word and believe the message that he said, and I'm going to put my faith in Christ. And the answer or the result of that in a person's life is that not only are they forgiven and cleansed of their sinful condition and its power broken in their lives, but he, the author of it, comes into their life and he begins a relationship with them and that person is born again. Just like what happens to Naaman. But it requires humility. Because it requires that you acknowledge the fact that you have a need and that you're powerless to meet it. You're unable to cleanse yourself of your sin. And you're called to acknowledge Jesus publicly because he says, if you confess me before men, just as Naaman was called in the sight of Israel and in the sight of his servants, then I will confess you before my Father and the angels in heaven. But it works. And how many of us here that have put our faith in a message that doesn't make sense have found that that message is the power of God unto salvation to all all who believe? And that God not only has the power to cleanse our sins, but break its power and come into our hearts and to begin this relationship that we have. And that's exactly what happens to Naaman here in this story. A proud, good man who has a very real need responds to the message of God dips himself seven times in the river. He's baptized in the Jordan. And he comes up clean. The flesh of a baby, he's born again. One more thing is before we move on to the aftermath of all of this, and that's this, is that there was a whole host of people involved in Naaman's conversion. It wasn't just one person that shared a message of the gospel with him. First of all, it was the little girl. Then there was the one, we're not told their name, who overheard the little girl and passed the message on to Naaman. Then there was the messenger that Elisha sent when Naaman was standing at the door. And then there was the servant of Elisha who said, hey, come on, be reasonable here. Just dip yourself in the river. There were at least four people involved in Naaman's conversion in this. The Billy Graham organization a few years ago published some 
results of some research that they did concerning people getting saved or putting their faith in Christ. And the conclusion that they came to is that before a person in the United States of America puts their faith in Christ, there are usually seven points of contact with the gospel that they have before they make that decision. In other words, they have either seen or heard something from a Christian at least seven times before they'll come to a point where they make a decision. Now, I know that that's not a rule. That's not an absolute. But they said, this is something that we have just found. And so my encouragement to you is this, is never think that because someone doesn't pray with you to accept Christ or because that person's heart is at a point where it's hardened and not ready at a place yet where God's prepared them, that that means that you shouldn't speak or witness to them. Because God uses a whole host of people in bringing people to himself. Well, it says in verse 15, it says that he returned now. So he's cleansed. He goes back to Elisha, to the man of God. He and all his company, and he came and he stood before him. And now he gets into Elisha. And he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. He seeks to give to Elisha and to his ministry the money and the clothing and the gifts that he had brought to pay for this service that had been rendered to him. But Elisha said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. But he urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha refuses the offering. Now imagine that, a preacher that refuses the offering of a willing giver. Why? The reason he didn't take this offering is because he wanted the message to be clear that cleansing is a gift of God, that it cannot be purchased. He did not want to send the message either to Naaman or to those that would know Naaman that there's a cost or a fee involved, that God wants anything for what he does. The Bible says that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that that is not of yourselves, that it is a gift of God and it's not by our works lest any man should boast. That we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That God bestowed his grace freely to us. Not by works of righteousness, Paul said to Titus, that we have done. But according to his grace, he has saved us. It's his mercy and it's freely given. It cannot be earned. We cannot pay for what God has provided for us in the person of Christ. And so Elisha would not take this thing because God didn't want anything for it. And so verse 17, it says that Naaman said, well, shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to me two mules burden of earth. He wants two mule loads of dirt from Israel. Why? For thy servant will henceforth from now on offer neither burnt offerings nor sacrifice unto any other God, but unto the Lord. From now on, I will only offer to the Lord, and so I want two mule loads of dirt so that I'm only offering my sacrifices on Israeli soil. Now, I love the picture here because in the New Testament, dirt, earth, is likened unto the heart of a person. And here, Naaman is symbolically, whether he even knows it or not, saying, I've got a brand new heart, a whole new outlook on this thing. I'm going back there completely different than the way that I came in. And so he asks for this thing, and then he goes on in verse 18, and he says, In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goes into the house of Rimen to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimen, an idol, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. 
And so Elisha said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. And so Naaman says to him, essentially, I've asked for you to take my offering, but if you won't take my offering, then you give to me two things. Number one, I want Israel soil. And number two, I need a pardon because part of my job description when I go home is that I'm going to have to go into the house of this idol and my master leans upon my hand. And so the Lord pardon it. I'm not bowing down in my heart, even though my job requires me to do something that would be against the conviction that is newly planted within my heart. And he says, God pardon me in this. Now, I find it interesting that Elisha does not give him the pardon, but he bids him to go in peace. I believe that the reason why Elisha does that is this, that Elisha knows that Naaman is a changed man, that he has a brand new heart and that God's got him. And therefore, God is going to work in Naaman's life those things that God wants in Naaman's life, and he's going to work out of Naaman's life those things that God doesn't want in Naaman's life. And that's exactly what God does within us. See, it isn't up to a man to tell us what we should and shouldn't be doing post salvation. If you are truly saved, then the spirit of the living God lives inside your heart and he knows what he's going to do in his order, in his time within your life. And there may be things in your life that you think, oh, well, as soon as I get saved, this is out of my life. Well, maybe not. God might not work on that specific area of your life, like your temper or your pride or certain habit for some time, but he will. And Elisha knows that if you belong to God, he's going to work all these things out. You go in peace, Naaman. Enjoy what God has done for you. But Gehazi, verse 20, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian in not receiving in his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and I will take something from him. Gehazi looks at what Elisha did and he says, don't you realize what we could have done with that money? I mean, we have needs. There's a ministry here. There's a gospel that we're bringing forth. There's education that we're bringing to the hearts of people. What are you doing in not taking this offering from him? And he's so incensed that Elisha refuses it that he begins to think of what he could do if he had some of that money. He thinks, hey, Naaman owes something. He can't just freely walk out of here with cleansing and pay nothing for it. So he begins to think, I want some of it. I'm going to go after him independently. And since he's so willing to give and I'm so eager to have, I'll just ask him for something and he will willingly give the gift to me and then I can use it as I see fit. And so Gehazi followed after Naaman and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, even now there shall there, there uh, become to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. We have two new students that just enrolled in the school from Ephraim. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Now notice what he does here. He uses Elisha's name and Elisha's badge to misrepresent Elisha's ministry. And then he lies about two supposed students and says, give us such and such for them. And Naaman said, be content, take two talents, take double. 
And he urged him, and he bound the two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments. And he laid them upon two of his servants, and they bear them before him. So he sends a couple of his servants back with Gehazi now to bring uh, this spoil back. And when he came to the tower, a certain point, he took them from their hand. He said, I've got it from here. And he bestowed them in the house. So he hid them in the house, and then he let the men go, and they departed. But he went in, and then he stood before his master. So he gets back. He's hidden now the spoils in his house. He goes in, and he's whistling. (laughs) And Elisha said unto him, Where are you coming from, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went nowhere. He's like a kid, right? I didn't, what are you talking about? I didn't go anywhere. Now, this is his second chance to repent. This is not the first chance. This is his second chance to repent. God giving him a chance to fess up here as God always does. And Elisha said unto him, verse 26, Went not my heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee. That was his first chance. Elisha here knows that at the moment that Naaman turned around and Gehazi saw his face renewed and fresh, And saw the light of the glory of God's grace beaming out of him, this newly regenerated man. That something happened in the conscience of Gehazi at that point that he knew what he was doing was wrong. But he disobeyed the prick of his conscience, the heart of Elisha, as Elisha calls it here. And he went and took it. That was strike one. Then Elisha says, fess up, where did you go? And he says, I went nowhere. He lies again. That is strike three. You, don't, you only get two strikes, apparently, in the story. you know. So it's strike three, missed one. Is it time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy, therefore, of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Now, the sin of Gehazi in all of this is the pride of life represented in covetousness and in greed. What he wants is money and clothing and land and livestock and servants. That's what he's after. He wants a name for himself, and he's seeking to establish himself as a great man of the world. He wants possession, and he's given to it. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with money, with clothing, with land, with livestock, with servants, Nothing wrong with having that if God has that for you and if God's given it to you. But it is wrong to pursue those things. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul the Apostle wrote to Timothy and he says, They that desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in perdition and destruction. But you flee those things. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Don't be given to pursue riches and status in this world. It's a lie. It's deceptive. It's wrong to love money. Not to have money. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So it's wrong to pursue it. That's Gehazi's first problem. His bigger problem is that he is so degenerately wanting in this thing that he is willing not only to pursue it, but to use God to get it. He has scored a coveted position with the prophet Elisha. I mean, really, think about it. Gehazi is to Elisha what Elisha was to Elijah. Remember? 
He washed his hands and feet for 10 years. And then he said, give me a double portion of the spirit that's upon you. And Elisha's ministry was elevated. It was thrust forward, you know, because of that. And now Gehazi has the opportunity to one day pray and say, Elisha, let a double portion of the spirit that's on you be upon me. And why wouldn't God answer that prayer? He's got this incredible opportunity, but in his heart, he's only using that as a platform to attain status and wealth and possessions in a worldly spectrum and scene. And what he's thinking to himself is that all I have to do is bide my time and I'll come to a point where I can then use my influence and my power and my authority that I have from God to enrich myself and to to have whatever it is that I want. Uh, It's mine to acquire once I have the position. I find it interesting that Elisha hadn't discerned that yet in Gehazi. I mean, maybe he had. Maybe he saw the beginning workings of it. But at this point, God lays it on him, and he shows him all that's in Gehazi's heart, and he calls Gehazi art. Now, here's the principle, and it's an interesting truth in Scripture. And don't forget it, because it applies to every one of us. What is in the heart, if it is not flushed out, it will eventually be fleshed out. That is always true. Every single one of us bring baggage into our relationship with Jesus Christ. Things from our old life, old habits, old things that are in our hearts. And as we walk with God, he by his grace and through his word reveals to us the things that are going on inside of our hearts. And it's at that point that we can either suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit and pretend those things aren't there. Or we can confess those things and we can get them under the blood of Jesus Christ. And 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us or break the power of that sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so in confessing it, we're flushing that sin out of our heart and out of our lives. But if we don't, and we hold on to it there, eventually that sin will be fleshed out in our actions and in our lives. And so if you have a desire for power and for money, then you might suppress that desire and hide it behind a Christian facade for a long time. But when the opportunity comes for you to grab a hold of it, that desire will be fleshed out in your power grab like it was for Gehazi. Your desire of your flesh might be hatred. You might be a person that's given to hatred and you suppress that in your heart and you let it be there. You don't flush it out. Well, eventually that hatred will result in murder. That's what Jesus said. That's where it begins. Your desire deep in your heart, your sinful seed that's still in there might be something of a sexual or illicit affection affection type of thing. If it's not flushed out and put under the blood of Jesus Christ, it's only a matter of time before it's fleshed out some way in your life and there's a destruction in the trail behind you of family and friends. It could be for any sin that you struggle with. It could be substance abuse or anything else that you have. If it's not flushed out, it will be fleshed out. And that's what happened to Gehazi. Now, sadly, there are many ministries and many ministers that are like Gehazi even in the world today. They use God and they use the ministry as a platform to enrich themselves. That's nothing new. That's been going on as long as time itself. The men of Shechem in Jacob's day, they were willing to be circumcised because they said, will not the cattle and the possessions of Jacob be ours if we do? They paid a price for it. We see it with Gehazi here. We see it later on with Judas Iscariot following Jesus only for what he would acquire and attain a position in a powerful kingdom. It's what he wanted. We see it with Simon the witch in the early chapters of the book of Acts when he said to Peter, I'll give you money. You give me the power of 
imparting the Holy Ghost to whomsoever I will. And Peter said, your money perish with you. And sadly, it exists in all too many ministers and ministries today that the ministry is nothing more than a platform to attain power and status and wealth and possessions for those that are in uh, whatever the given position of ministry is. It's interesting. Gehazi wanted what Naaman had, and he got it. He wanted greatness, possessions, and status, and he got it. But he also got the leprosy that clung to Naaman. Interesting contrast. Naaman traded his pride for new life, and Gehazi traded new life to feed his pride. Beware of coveting after worldly success. Now, there's nothing wrong, as I said, with possessions and wealth. And there's nothing wrong with a ministry expressing a need or taking an offering. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But to make like God needs something from man, like he doesn't own the cattle on a thousand hills, like he is hungry, like he is going bankrupt, and it's up to us to save God from going out of business, is to misrepresent and to disrespect our Father. And that is an abomination. See, God uses the gifts of people to keep his work going. That's the way that he's ordained that ministry continues from generation to generation. But he never places it upon someone in a requirement that they have to give to him or else he's going to go broke. I like what Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, said to her. He looked at her and he said, hey, God wants to use you to meet a need that that the, the people of God have at this time. And if you don't respond to that need, then he'll raise someone else up and he's going to do it because he's going to be faithful to carry on his work. But how do you know that God hasn't raised you up for such a time as this? And that's always to be our attitude when it concerns our giving to the things of the kingdom of God. God uses and accepts our gifts. And they're to be offered in faith and with a joyful heart. But if we refuse to give, God doesn't hold it against us. He just puts it upon someone else's heart and they get the reward and the blessing of doing it. Well, Gehazi is now disqualified and removed. He not only wants wealth and covets it, but he's willing to use and misrepresent God to get it, and thus he's disqualified from a place of ministry and removed. I wonder if Naaman went to the Jordan River and just kept jumping in it. (laughs) I don't think it worked. Chapter 6. It says, And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with you is too straight for us, or too small. So enrollment is up at the school of the prophets, and they say, we need more room. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence from there every man a beam, a tree, and let us make a place there that we may dwell. And he answered, go. So here's a construction project because the church walls are too small. It's fitting, isn't it? It's amazing how many times that where we are in Scripture, that's where we are in our walk with the Lord. Well, he says, let us make a place by the river. And he says, go ahead, go do it. And one said to Elisha, be content, I pray thee, and go with us. And he said, all right, I'll go. So he went with them, and they went, and they came to Jordan, and they cut down wood. But as one was felling a beam, or cutting down a tree, the axe head fell into the water, flies off the top of the handle, and bloop, you know. And he cried, and he said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. It wasn't mine. I begged someone to give this thing to me and I'm using it and now I've lost the accent. Now, in those days, iron was not something that you could just go get at Home Depot. It was hard to come by. It was a rare thing and very expensive and costly. And this man goes into a panic now as he realizes that was not mine. Doesn't that always happen when you borrow a tool? 
I mean, really, I every time I borrow a tool, it breaks. Anyways, it says that the man of God said, where fell it? And he showed him the place and he cut down a stick from the tree and he cast it in there and the iron did swim. So a miraculous thing took place that the iron axe had that it sunk to the bottom of this murky river filled with Naaman's skin cells. Now this axe head floats to the surface miraculously. And therefore he said, take it up to you. And so he put out his hand and he took it. Now this story is about restoration. And this story is about those who get so wrapped up in what they're doing that they lose sight of what they're doing. Now I like this passage because I am this student. I can relate to this student more than I can relate to so many other characters in scripture. One of my therapy outlets that I have, and I have many, is wood splitting. I love my wood stove. It's in my top 10 list of my favorite possessions is my wood stove. And I've had it cranking since since like the beginning of September. You know, as soon as it drops below 65, I've got it burning, you know. But I split all of my wood by hand, and I love it. I have an eight-pound maul on the thing, and I use that because it doesn't get stuck in the wood like the skinny ones, and you could just kind of plow through, and it's a great workout, and I just love splitting wood. It's therapy for me, 20 minutes a day, just poof, splitting wood, you know. But every two, three years, this same thing happens. I buy these fiberglass axe handles. They're supposedly indestructible. They last a couple years and then the axe head flies off. It breaks off or something happens and you don't want to be standing anywhere around when that happens, you know, because the thing just goes flying everywhere. A couple of times I brought it back. There was, they used to put a sticker on the axe handle that said indestructible guaranteed and I would put tape over that sticker, wait for the axe head to fall off. Then I would take the tape off, bring it to Home Depot and say, hey, this, you said indestructible and I get a free axe. And that worked the first two times, but then they stopped putting the sticker on the side of the axe handle so now uh, every three years I have to go and buy a new um, eight-pound mall with the fiberglass axe handle, and they work pretty good, you know, so I'm not complaining. But I know what it's like to lose an axe head, and I know what it takes to lose an axe head, and it takes a lot. They don't just fly off the end of an axe. You know, now maybe they didn't make axes that good uh, in those days, but here's a guy who's chopping away with all the other students, and all of a sudden he realizes that he's not getting anywhere. And I don't know how long he kept on swinging that thing before he realized that nothing is happening, you know. And then he turns around and he sees ripples in the water and he begins to panic because he realizes, oh no, that wasn't mine. Now there are times in my life, and I don't know if you can relate to this, that I feel personally like I've lost my edge. That not splitting wood necessarily, but in the other things that are more important in life where they aren't therapy but they're necessary, and I feel as though the cutting edge is gone. There's something that's happened and the power is missing. And it never happens all at once, but there's always a process. First, it gets dull. And you find yourself that you have to put forth twice as much energy or effort in order to get the same result or yield that you used to get in doing a certain thing that you've done every day forever. But for some reason, the axe has become dull. Ecclesiastes 10.10 says that if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. And that's what happens. And so you feel yourself wear down and you keep swinging because you can't stop because we live in a life where you can't stop even if you're tired. And then you begin to realize I'm chopping, I'm swinging, but nothing is happening. 
I've lost it. My axe head is gone. And so you fake it for a while and you go, yeah, everything's good over here. And you keep swinging the thing. And you, but you know that it's only a matter of time before you realize. Or they, now, this can happen in any area of life. It can happen as a parent. It can happen within our profession. It can happen as a spouse. You could find in your marriage that there's something missing. The edge is gone. It can happen with your gifts, the natural talents that God has given to you that you use every day in your professional life or in your personal life. It can be in your productivity, that thing that you produce. It can happen in your prayer life. Your prayer life can lose its edge. You can feel like, I'm not connecting. It's gone. It can happen in your devotional life. And there's so many different areas of life where we can come to a point where we realize that the edge is gone. Here's what we need to realize. Is that anything that is effective or ultimately productive and useful within our lives doesn't come from ourselves. The Apostle Paul says, in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. There is nothing in us that can produce anything. All of our talents, our strengths, our abilities, or even just our strength that we have to do what we have to do with. All of that comes from God, and thus it is borrowed. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, what do you have that you did not receive from God? And if you received it, then why do you boast as though you didn't receive it, as though it's natural? Our edge always comes from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. Now, they come from God. They are also kept by God. And when we become distant from God, then those things become dull, and ultimately they become ineffective within our lives. You come to a point where you realize that you've lost something, and it's something of value, and that you don't possess the ability to produce it again. So what do you do when your axe head is gone? First thing you do, like he did, he cried aloud to his master. Alas, master, the axe head is gone. Go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need help. The strength that I've had to put forward in this thing, my life has become completely ineffective. My prayer life has become completely ineffective. Lord, I need you to revive your work. I need you to sharpen me again. I need you to do in my life what I can't do for myself. What does Elisha say to the young man? He says to him this. He says, go to the place where you lost it. Return. Where did you lose? Where was the place where you first began to lose your strength? I know for me where that place always is. It's in a place where in self-sufficiency, I grew distant from the Lord. I stopped depending on him. Oh, Lord, I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy to call upon you, to wait upon you. I don't have time. I can't, Lord. I'll get back to that point in my life. Go back now. Get back to that place where you're close to the Lord, depending on the Lord again. And number three is throw the wood or the tree in. In the Bible, wood always speaks of the works of our flesh or the energy of our flesh. 1 Corinthians 3.12, Paul said, our efforts are like wood, hay, and stubble. They don't make it through the fire. They don't abide. The tree in the Bible always speaks of the cross. Deuteronomy chapter 21, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. Paul echoes that in Galatians chapter 3. He says, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree, speaking of the cross. Peter wrote to the churches and he said that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross. And so the flesh upon the cross, the idea is very clear that take what is being done in your life in the energy of your flesh and nail it to the cross. Bring it back to the place where you are depending fully upon Jesus to be the strength of your life. Bring it back to Christ. It is impossible for you and I to act or function independent of God. Our strength is always in him, and our effectiveness always comes when we're close to him. 
Abraham Lincoln said it this way. He said, if I had eight hours to cut down a tree, I would spend six of them sharpening my axe. Wise words from a wise man. Well, it's a beautiful picture of God's restoration within our lives and his ability to restore those things that have worn, grown dull, or that have been lost by us. So tonight, the God who redeems the life of Naaman and the God who restores, the Bible says that his thoughts towards us are always for peace and not for evil, to bring us a future and a hope. Do you know him? Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for taking us through your text, for letting us see who you are in the pages of your word. It's so valuable for us, Lord, to see the pictures and the parables that you tell through the lives of these people and through the service of your prophets. And Lord, as we tonight are the beneficiaries of the lessons that you worked out in the flesh so long ago, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would know the God of Elisha, that we would know the God of Naaman, who brings our flesh again to be that of a baby, that bears us again by his spirit through the word of God. And Lord, tonight, I'm sure that there are many of us here, Lord, that underneath the pressures of life and the things that we've done, Lord, we've become dull. For some of us, that edge is all but gone. And tonight, Lord, we bring ourselves back to you. And we pray and we cry out, Alas, Master, it was borrowed. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us again, Lord, a time of refreshing. Lord, that the things that we do with our time and with our days would stop being difficult. And that, Lord, they'd become a joy to us again that you'd revive and refresh the gifts that we have that have come from heaven. And that you would help us, Lord, that we would serve in your strength. And that we would give ourselves, Lord, only to those things that you want for us and have for us. And that the rest would fall by the wayside. And Lord, that the joy of life would be ours. You said that my joy might remain in you, Lord. And so it's our prayer tonight that you would make that happen, that you would make it a reality. And Father, we believe tonight that it is not your desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I pray tonight, Lord, that if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you personally, that just like Naaman, Lord, who on the outside, everything looked good, everything appeared to be in place, but underneath, Lord, they know that there's an issue. And it's only a matter of time before that sin, that subsurface, is going to manifest itself outwardly. I pray that tonight they would hear the knocking call of your still small voice as you cry out to them and say, wash in the blood of my precious son Jesus and be clean. I don't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that tonight, like Naaman, Lord, they would call upon you, that they would receive Christ, that they would receive grace, and that they would be forgiven of their sins. Thank you, Lord, for this time tonight. Would you send us forth in the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, come find me after the service because I want to pray with you and I want to see happen in your spirit what happened to Naaman's flesh as God comes into your life and shows you his great, incredible grace and love. In Jesus' name.